Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The collective unconscious may be defined as a culture code, a set of imprinted concepts that control how members of different societies think and live. Dr. Clotaire Rapai, a French-born psychologist, brings together the concepts of Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud in his description of the collective unconscious in the book The Culture Code, an ingenious way to understand why people around the world live and buy as they do. Dr. Rapai thrives on new ideas, which is part of the reason he chose to become an American citizen. In this, the first of two interviews with Dr. Rapai, he and I visited by phone from his home in New York State the last week of June 2006. We began when I asked him to describe the development of his ideas. Well, you see, the, the, the first big idea was that there is something between uh, Carl Gustav Jung on one side and, and Freud on the other side. Uh, and that was like a missing link, if you want. And my first uh, uh, training was into the, the, the Freudian uh, psychoanalysis dimension, which means trying to understand the individual unconscious. You have an unconscious, I have an unconscious, and without being aware, uh, most of the time, this unconscious uh, uh, you know, pull the strings and and is the puppeteer behind behind why we do things. So I, I was I, I went into psychoanalysis and study all that. Then I went into the the Jungian side and he speaks about the um, universal unconscious. It's like more like biology, something that uh, you know we all had a mother, we all come from a woman, we all spend over nine months inside of a woman, not on the, of a man. I mean all this logic of life biology that start I mean, making things. Uh, very uh, organized in terms of survival and, and reproduction. But then something in between was missing because, you know, when a man and a woman have a child, they usually have a little human being. It's rare that you have a bird, a fish, an alligator, or something like that. But when an American man and an American woman have a child, they usually have a little American. And there is no genes, no chromosomes of, of being American. So how do you become member of this uh, culture? And that was the missing link for me, was the, the cultural unconscious. The fact that there each culture, uh, without being aware of it, transmit from one generation to another um, a set of reference system in people's brain, and, and without being aware of it, this is uh, the way we look at coffee because we're American, which is very different from the way Italians look at coffee. So then you've divided it into uh, the language as a structure and the point of view, using coffee as your example. Right. What do you find? Well, you see, if, if I study coffee, for example, the first thing that I discovered when I was working with autistic children many, many years ago is that there is a window in time to learn about anything. So to imprint what I call a code, a cultural code, in people's mind, there is a window in time. When do you learn about that? And the, the age where you learn, when you learn about whatever we're studying is very, very key. For example, in America, we know that coffee is imprinted uh, when people are two. Uh, so when you are two-year-old, uh, you don't drink coffee. So what do you imprint? And then we discover that what people imprint is an old system. 
And there's a label that you put on this system, which is what I call the access code. So what is a system? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a two-year-old. I mean, you know, my mother is preparing breakfast. She uh, is going to feed me. She loves me. Uh, she's a, I'm a, a happy kid. I'm safe. I'm home. The whole notion that is activated, the reference system in people's brain that is activated when they smell coffee, when the aroma of coffee is there, is, is home. Why? Because when you are too old, you don't drink coffee, but you can smell it. So then we discover that at this moment in time uh, in American culture, you imprint that dimension of home and, and, and mother and feeding and so on. Then later on, under peer pressure, the best alibi to try everything in America, you, you try it when you are a, a teenager and you don't like it, so you put milk, cream, sugar to try to hide the taste. So then you realize that suddenly uh, the aroma is a lot stronger because imprinted at the early, earlier age than the taste. Uh, that work was done for P&G, and P&G, they love me, and they, they care very much about me, but they always test 500 times what I say. You know, they, they trust me, but they test. So they went there, and they discovered that a large majority of Americans love the aroma of coffee, like 97% of the people love the aroma, but only 45% love the taste. So bingo, from now on, you know, that was done for Folger Coffee. Which, which kind of business do you want to be in, the aroma or the taste? You know, it's very obvious. And so if you, you, you've seen, I'm sure, the consequences of this work is like, um, you know, we have this uh, commercial, and uh, the boy comes back from the army, he's in the uniform, and he goes, mother is upstairs asleep. He goes directly to the kitchen, uh, open the box. I mean, we, we, we designed the packaging to make sure that the aroma was coming right in your face, you know. And he starts preparing coffee. We never show him drinking coffee. And the aroma goes upstairs. And the mother, she's asleep. She opens an eye, opens an eye, and starts smiling. And she smells the coffee. And we know exactly the word she's going to say because we know that aroma is reactivating in the brain a reference system that has been imprinted at a very early age. And so she say, oh, he's home. And she rushed down the stairs, hugged the boy. We tested it. PNG, they test everything 500 times. You're saying PNG? Yeah, Procter & Gamble. So you're saying that the imprint that occurs, uh, the first experience, in this case around age two, you also talk about the imprint of toilet paper around the age two, which I'd like to have you tell us about. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is so funny. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's amazing that... Uh, when uh, when uh, I, I was studying toilet paper, I, you know, uh, the first thing that comes, and especially because of my training and my work with children, we know that toilet training is a very important stage in the development of the of, of children. In America, you can go to a bookstore and you can buy a book about toilet training. If you are a parent, you know that uh, toilet training is important because your kids cannot go to summer camp if they're not toilet trained. So toilet training is something that you really waiting for. When your kids are supposed to be toilet trained, as a parent, you know that sometimes you just have to go and check and to finish the job. Sometimes you have to finish the job, and it's not very pleasant. But one day, and there is no book ever written about it, your kids are toilet paper trained, which is a major change in life, because for the first time, your children can close the door, lock the door, and say, mommy, stay out. And mommy is so pleased not to have to do the job anymore that she praises you and she says, oh, bravo, fantastic, good job, and so on. So the logic of emotion, what I call the logic of emotion, it's, it's emotional, but there is a logic behind that. 
is that for the first time of your life, you can reject your parents without feeling guilty. This is a big thing. It's the beginning of independence. I, I was working with her president of the Ritz-Carlton at the time, and I said, I know where you should put all your money at the Ritz-Carlton. And he said, where? I said, around the toilet seat. And he said, you kidding or what? No, I said, look, because what, what is the imprint here? If you're a mother and you work all day, you arrive home at night, and your body doesn't, doesn't belong to you. No, mommy, 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 they want you. So there is one place where you can go, close the door, and reject your old family without feeling guilty. Where is it? And that's the toilet seat. So you go there, you sit down, you lock the door, and you say, mommy is busy, and, and you're not guilty because the first imprint that you can reject your family without feeling guilty. Then, around the toilet seat, you want to have Mr. Coffee, you want television, you want a telephone, you want the internet, you want a bunch of books. I mean, And you can look at what is happening there. I mean, there is no bathroom now in a hotel without uh, a TV set and a telephone. And so this is, this is growing this way. Why? Because this is a place where we can feel okay to take care of ourselves without feeling guilty to reject the family. You also talk about overweight people and some people who maybe they just wander into being overweight, but then it becomes an escape. What you see, the symptom, is a solution. The symptom is not a problem. And so when you see uh, fat people... Uh, what you see is not the problem. What you see is a solution to what kind of other problem. You know, it's like your kids don't want to go to school, so they have a headache. So you give them some Tylenol so they don't have a headache anymore. So they go down the stairs and they break their legs. Because they still don't want to go to school. The problem is not the headache. The problem is school. And so when we look at, at, at very fat people, we, we have to to change completely our way of looking at that. Because if we try to force them to be skinny... And, and, and when being skinny is, is the problem, is a dangerous dimension there. So this, and I can give you an example of that. I had a patient one day. She was a woman, and she came to see me, and she was nice-looking and, and skinny. And she said, you know, my life is empty. I have no, no purpose in life. I just feel like I'm, I'm, you know, empty was the key word for her all the time, empty, empty, empty. And then one day she arrived, and she told me, doctor, I don't need you anymore. Uh, because I'm fine. So I said, what happened? Well, I'm pregnant, which means she was going to be full. And so then she started you know, being full and bigger and bigger and bigger, and she was happy, happier, happier. And then one day, boom, uh, the kid is, was born, and she was empty again. And you know the postpartum depression is a classic thing, but she came back to see me and said, my life is empty again, you know, even if she was to, had to take care of the kid. And it did happen several times like that. Then one day she came back and said, you know, that's it, I'm pregnant again. And then, you know, then after a while, there is a system, but why do you get skinny to get pregnant? Why? Because when you're skinny, you attract the guys. But one day you're tired of skinny, pregnant, skinny, pregnant, skinny, pregnant, so then you stop. Now you get out of the game and you decide that you're going to be to look like you're pregnant all the time. <laughs> you know, sometimes I look at people that are so fat, I don't know if they're pregnant or not. I mean, they might be pregnant or they might just be very fat. But, and, and one of, it's part of the same expression we have in America when we say, you know, thank, you eat a lot and you say, thank you, I'm full. It's like the purpose is to fill up the tank. And this notion of feeling full, uh, you know, it, it's a very, very important notion here. So, a lot of women in the American culture at a certain time are just checking out and don't want to be uh, uh, 
part of this game plan anymore. And so they, in one way, this is this being being fat and and uh, uh, it's it's a it's a solution, and it's not the problem. You see, and that's what is kind of very powerful here is to look at that not as a problem, but as a solution. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Dr. Clotaire Rapai, the author of The Culture Code, an ingenious way to understand why people around the world live and buy as they do. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Dr. Clotaire Rapai, you move this then from people who are overweight into people who are shopping, people who love to shop, as yet another reconnection. That's the social connection with the seller, the salesperson? Not, not just the salesperson. I mean, when you go shopping, and uh, you know, every uh, woman that can listen to me today, I'm sure they can feel that. Uh, when you go shopping, it's all dimension. Again, you don't really need something. You're not buying an object. It's an alibi. The real, the real purpose is for me to reconnect with life. It, it's an old dimension that if you are alone in your apartment, I mean, you're disconnected with life. But when you go shopping, you can see everything from the product for the baby, for the grandparents, or for the dog, for the cat. I mean, the whole life is there. You know, everything from babies to old people, uh, from the first diaper generation to the last diaper generation. So everything is right there, and you can see what is new, what is happening. So it's, it's, it's not just because you need to buy something. You need to reconnect with life. And, of course, you have some people there that can, I mean, what can happen? A lot of things can happen. I mean, we know that some people um, uh, try to go and, and pick up girls and pick up boys and when they go shopping because this is a way, you know, you have an alibi to meet people and to speak to people and so on. It, it's very different that when you are isolated alone uh, at home, uh, at a certain time you need to go out. And, and that's why people feel like it's like a psychotherapy in some way. Shopping is a psychotherapy. I mean, my wife doesn't need another pair of shoes, uh, and many women have so many pair of shoes that you know you wonder why they need to buy more pair of shoes. But it's not the, the, the shoes are an alibi. The real reason is to go back there and reconnect and do things and explore life and discover new trends and to be in and to be uh, connected with what is happening in life. Well, that reconnection, then, is part of our brain structure, the limbic, the cortex, and the reptilian brain that goes back into our need for survival. In your book, The Culture Code, you put this into a political code of how, for example, in the United States, uh, certain presidential candidates appeal more than others. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You see, the, the, the three brains, for me, you have the reptilian brain, which is survival, reproduction, the limbic, which is emotions, and then the cortex, which is intellectual thinking, numbers, and things like that. And my theory is that the reptilian brain always wins. So if you have two candidates, like Bush versus Kerry, and one candidate is just a little bit more reptilian than the others, uh, the reptilian is going to win. And that was my concern about Kerry. I mean, Kerry was two cortex. You know, he was thinking too much. He said, you know, when, when you say something like I voted for before I, uh, you know, uh, 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 before I voted against or I voted against before I voted, I mean, this is confusing. So you're thinking too much. Uh, what are your guts telling you? And, and one thing that I did at the time um, was to have a group of mothers, uh, and, and I was exploring them, how they felt about the different candidates. And one, I mean, and this woman told me, 
you know, if there is a crazy guy in my bedroom with a gun that is going to shoot my baby, and who do I want to be there to protect my baby, Kerry or Bush? And it was amazing. 100% of the mothers told me, without any hesitation, Bush. I'm a, I don't like the guy, but he's going to shoot first. Kerry is going to speak. He's going to try to flip-flop kind of a, you know, let's try to negotiate. And then the baby might be dead. So it, 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 for me, is that in many ways, uh, Bush was perceived as more reptilian, and Kerry was too much cortex, and the reptilian always wins. This is no doubt about that. So in your example, the might, my baby might be dead, that's the operative phrase, the operative gut feeling. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You see, and, and you know, I, I, if we want to go into this direction for a minute, I think that Bush didn't win the election. You know, this is not, I think Kerry lost. And because Kerry lost, we ended up with Bush. And by the way, there was the same thing with Gore. Al Gore was not even able to win his own, uh, you know, own state. And again, Gore, you know, he, as we all know, he invented the Internet. I mean, this is, this is so cortex kind of statement, you know. Uh, I don't care about somebody that invented the Internet. I care about somebody that is going to protect my baby and going to shoot first if I'm attacked. Uh, you know, and so this is Gore was like the, 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 the professor that is going to teach me how I should eat every morning on television. I mean, I hated that. So it, it, it's, it's, again, cortex, limbic, or, or, or reptilian. And the more reptilian you are, even if it's just a little bit, little bit more than your competitor, then, then you win. The movie An Inconvenient Truth, which tells Al Gore's story about global warming, reveals this in yet another way. It's, it has the combination of both. How do you project the reaction of the people of the United States to this movie? You know, I, I believe that we are uh, the code for American, and I'm a new American. I love America, so I don't want you to think that I'm criticizing the American culture because I choose to become an American. But we are an adolescent culture. And adolescents don't care much about long-term. I mean, when you are 18, uh, 16, 18, you, you, you're thinking about now. You want the car, you want the girl or the boy, you want to go out, you want to do things now. The consequences within 20 years, 30 years, you don't give a damn. You don't care. You don't, you know, it's not a concern. So that's why we say always we are very short-term oriented, quick fix and things like that, because we are an adolescent culture. So each time somebody tells me, oh, you know, there is some scientific proof that things are going to be this way in 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, who cares? Second element that is very key, we don't believe in science anymore. Science is dead. We believe in technology, which is a different story. But science, each time you listen to the scientists, they never agree on anything. So one day scientists tell you coffee is good for your health. The next day they say, oh, new research, coffee is bad. Oh, new research, coffee is good again. Oh, new. So you say, hey, make up your mind, guys. The purpose of science is to increase anxiety. Uh, so we have people that say, oh, look, this is uh, global warming, right? Great. But, but now then, then sometimes it's so cold. You say, well, where, where is the heat? I mean, it's so cold. You know, so, uh, you know, again, what, what is that? This is so complex as, as an entity. And then we believe, because we are adolescent, that one day uh, we're going to invent a new technology that, which is going to solve this problem. I, I think in America we, we, it's even worse than that. We don't want to solve problems. We make, we make problems obsolete. We move to another problem. In other words, just ignore it and it'll go away. 
well, ignore it or just trust the technology. We, we, we're going to come up with a solution sometime. Don't worry about that. But, you know, the key issue here is if you give me all these big issues, long-term issues, uh, what is in there for me now? The time in the American culture is now. I want to be rich and famous now. I don't care to be famous when I'm dead. I mean, this is not you know, the big issue here. In other cultures, for example, if you are successful right now, which means that you're too much in sync with your culture, so you're not provocative enough, you're not ahead, you, you're not, you're not the, the, uh, challenging the culture. And so they, they, they take pride to be rejected by the culture because if they're rejected by the culture, poor, they don't make any money, it's kind of a proof that they're really ahead of the culture. In America, it's not, in America, it's not true. I mean, if, if you're good, you should be successful. And so this is, you know, so this is the now time. The now time is very important. I don't think any politician will ever be uh, elected just because he had great ideas for what is going to happen within 20 or 30 years. Forget it. So where then do you see the future of the American politic or the American culture going if you distinguish between politic and culture? You know, I, I think that we have the politician we deserve in many ways, and we have the political life that we deserve. Uh, which means, for me, politics is, uh, is like a soap opera, is entertainment. Why? Because the founding fathers were brilliant. You know, I, I keep reading about Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. and all the, I love the founding fathers. These people were absolutely brilliant. And they created a system where nobody can really have all the power. And so, it, it, you know, the, uh, the best thing that can happen is that nothing happens. And so Washington is completely useless after a while. And we love that. Why? Because we, the people, can take over and do our own thing. You know, so the, 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 the big issue in America is sometimes we just don't need the politicians. They're making more, a mess more than anything else. And, and, you know, and, and each state can do whatever they want. There is a lot, a lot of uh, freedom and liberty there. Now, the thing is that we, what we expect from the politicians, we expect them to be good entertainers. I mean, that was Bill Clinton was so successful. This guy was providing so much material to all the stand-up comedians that you know, they, they couldn't dream of a better president. And we loved him. I mean, he was the perfect adolescent. Always a girl under the table, always something going on in his life. I mean, teaching us how to use a cigar. I mean, it was just fascinating. The guy was just a, a, a genius in terms of communication. Because it was, he, he was the, and he still is, uh, the archetypal adolescent, which appeals to all the Americans. I mean, I'm sure that if he was allowed to, uh, um, to run for president, he would be reelected. I mean, because it's so much in sync with the code and with, with the culture. So, you know, w what we don't like is, is politicians that are just so serious that they are boring, and they're just trying to tell us some scientific evidence with they have no idea what they're speaking about. Uh, they're boring. These people are boring. Do you see the culture moving out of adolescence into a different level of maturity? Uh, my, my first reaction will be, I hope not, because, I, you know, I choose to be part of an adolescent culture, uh, and I'd rather be part of an adolescent culture than a senile culture, and I think the French are senile. So, you know, but I think, yes, I think every culture moves from one level to another. What is good in America is that because we have all these immigrants, we are a nation of immigrants, I'm a new American, I'm proud to be American. And it's like an influx of new blood all the time, 
of people that want to have impossible dreams, want to make a difference, want to create a better world for their children, believe in this American dream. You know, why do we have 12 million illegal immigrants in America? Because they believe in it. They, they think they can make it here. And so because of that, the American culture is alive. Now, yes, it's an adolescent culture, and, and it looks like as long as we're going to have immigrants, we're not going to become grown-ups. We don't want to grow up. You know, the expression is, I don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up, because I don't want to grow up. This is very clear. And because of that, the situation of the world is a big issue, big problem here. We are an adolescent culture, and we inherited of billions of children. Because there is no other parent left in the world. The Russians are gone. I mean, the Chinese are not there. The Japanese cannot do it. So we are the only parents left, but we are an adolescent parent. And that's what the rest of the world uh, love and resent at the same time. Uh, we, we don't want to be running the world. <clears throat> it's like, you know, the, the parents want to have fun, too. They are adolescent. And so that's why we have problems with our adolescent children. Do you see the gates to America being closed at the borders? I hope not, and I don't think it's possible. We have been open to uh, people coming from all around the world. I, I do believe that uh, what is legal should be legal and what is illegal should be illegal. Well, how about closing the borders? Uh, I, I think, no, I don't think the border should be closed. I think the border should be open, but we should have a system, a legal system, to get these people that want to come and become American to become American. It, it took me like 15 years to become American. That was a long process. And I don't think it's fair, and we want to be fair, that some people are waiting in line, they've been waiting in line for years, and some other people just break the law and, and, and have, can, can leave here. I don't think this is fair. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I don't think the, the America can survive with closed borders. Dr. Clotaire Rapai, thanks for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? There is one that for me is just an amazing archetypal, an, an amazing code, if you want. That's the Da Vinci Code. Why is this book so powerful? It has nothing to do with church. It has nothing to do with uh, the religion or the secret society. But the major element for me in the, the success of these books worldwide is the reptilian dimension. The reptilian brain is winning again. What is the, the, the old message of the book? And this is one word, one word. The book has one word as a message, and the word is woman. The grail is a woman. The solution is a woman. The future is a woman. We have been thinking and looking at the world through the male glasses for so long that to switch the paradigm shift to realize that maybe uh, this is time to go and to look at the world and the universe and our life through the woman, the feminine dimension. And the holy grail being a woman is just such a big breakthrough. And that's why worldwide uh, this book has been a big success. Dr. Clotaire Rapai, thanks for being with us on Radio Curious. My pleasure. Dr. Clotaire Rapai is the author of The Culture Code, an ingenious way to understand why people around the world live and buy as they do. The book he recommends is The Da Vinci Code, by Dan Brown. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, 
radiocurious.org. And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.